0: Three, because I know that I was the one listening to this sermon series, I would want to know what the pastor was gonna say about the epithelium. So if he just skipped he or she just skipped over it, I would not be happy. So and then four, I'm stubborn. I don't want to skip over anything. So alright, we're gonna do this. Um, so all that said this week I am shamelessly employing a contemporary media reference in entitling this message Genesis Stranger Things. Ow. So buckle your seatbelts. Um, things are gonna get weird. If, uh, if you're new here, I promise you, we're not normally this weird. I mean, we're weird, but we're not normally this weird. So, let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word and we thank you for the times even when it's mysterious or confusing. Uh, I pray that you would um, you would just stoke our curiosity this morning, that we would want to to learn, that we'd be interested in in your word and uh, even the strange parts, and I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us uh, even through the strange things, and uh, we just offer this morning to you and pray that you would uh, help us to pay attention and listen to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis 5. Uh, now, there are really two stranger things in this section of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today. The first stranger thing is, comes in Genesis 5, the second in Genesis 6, where the Nephilim is. Uh, but we'll start with Genesis 5. Genesis 5 is a genealogy. The Bible has quite a few genealogies. Uh, and you might remember that at the end of the last chapter, chapter 4, we learned about the genealogy of Cain. right? And you might remember that the genealogy of Cain gets really bad. In fact, the, the, last, the genealogy of Cain culminates with this man named Lamech. And Lamech is the first example in the Bible of a polygamist. He's married multiple wives, and he brags about killing people. Okay. So the purpose of this is to show that Cain's line grew increasingly sinful, increasingly wicked. Now, in chapter 5, we're told about a different line, the line of Seth. And I'm not going to read the whole genealogy, because it goes on for quite a while, but I'll read at least the first few verses, and then we can, we can get an idea of what it's like. So, starting in verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man, or Adam. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. Enosh lived 850 years, and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. So, you get the idea. Uh, And this genealogy goes on for 10 generations, and it ends with Noah. Now you might be wondering, okay, what is the the point of this? Why do I need to know this? Why is this in here? Well, I think the key to figuring out why this is included, why it's important, is this one little verse that we've talked about for the last two or three weeks. Genesis 3.15. Uh, these were the, the words that God said to the serpent, or the devil, who was represented by the serpent, after humanity fell, after the serpent led humanity into sin. It's a very strange enigmatic verse. He says, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And what, what this verse is is, it, it is a promise to Adam and Eve and in a sense to the serpent, that in the future, a particular descendant, a particular offspring is going to come through the woman. In other words, through the human genetic line. And that particular offspring, that particular descendant is going to destroy the devil. And through destroying the devil, of course, destroy the power of sin and power of death. And there's a hint here that as that descendant goes to crush the devil, he will also suffer because the serpent will strike his heel so the image here is of uh, someone going to crush a serpent by stepping on it and as they go to step on it the serpent bites their heel and at the time people might not have been people were not really aware of how this was going to be fulfilled but us looking back on it we can see Jesus fulfilled this because he was an offspring of the woman and he crushed Satan he crushed the power of sin and, and death And when he did it, he suffered on the cross. Okay? So, all right, what does this have to do with the genealogies? Okay. Well, the reason these genealogies are significant is because they're describing the offspring of the woman. Right? So, with each offspring, there is a hope that this promise is going to be fulfilled. Each offspring is carrying the hope of the promise. Uh, With each one, there's this possibility. Hey, maybe this is going to be the one that's going to crush the devil and end the curse of death. But with each generation in, in chapter five, we're reminded that the curse remains, right? The offspring still hasn't come. Because at the end of each generation, what are we told? And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. Each generation has the hope of the promise, but also we see continues to carry the curse. Um, And I want us to also notice those words, and then he died, they don't need to be there, right? They're really there for dramatic effect. It could just say, Seth lived for 912 years. We get the idea, right? We don't need to have this clarification, and then he died. But by saying, and then he died, it's emphasizing the curse. The curse is still there, and then he died, and then he died. And the curse, of course, was what was given in Genesis 3. You will return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Interestingly, though, I have to mention this. There is one exception uh, to that pattern in Genesis 5. And it comes in the seventh generation. It, It says in verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. Now what does that mean? Well, we don't know absolutely for sure, but it sounds like Enoch's transition out of this life was unusual. Um, And it was different in a positive way. And the difference appears to be because his life had a quality to it that was different. It says he walked with God. What does that mean? Well, it means he kept company with God. He paid attention to God. He sought God's will for his life. And because of that, it appears that the effects of the curse were lessened in his life in a dramatic way. Now, I hesitated to say that because I don't want us to think that walking with God necessarily results in, you know, life uh, being free from pain and suffering. Uh, We know that that's not true. Um, But... When we walk with God, when we keep company with him, it is true that there's a blessing in that. That good things do come from that. Maybe not in exactly the way we expect them to, but they do come. And like with Enoch, uh, when, we, when we walk with God, the power of the curse loses its strength. We still experience its effects, but in the end, it does not have power over us. When we walk with God, there's something stronger in our lives than this curse. Now, the stranger thing here, of course, is these enormous lifespans. You know, uh, most of the people are said to live over 900 years. And Methuselah, he's the oldest, he's said to have lived 969 years. 969 years. If someone was alive today, that was born 969 years ago, they would have been born in 1048. So they would have been the ripe old age of uh, 450 when Columbus ended up in America. And they'd still be here. Uh, So if you're anything like me, you read this and you're like, what the heck am I supposed to do with this?" this? Am I really supposed to believe that people live this long? Well, my first thought when I was looking at this was, hey, uh, maybe this is translated as years, but it's actually a shorter amount of time and we, we didn't realize that, you know, it's a different unit of time, maybe But my, my attempts to um, make that work didn't work, uh, unfortunately <laughs> So, um, for example, uh, it says that Enoch became the father of Methuselah when he was 65 Now, that's the youngest age that's mentioned here So I, I thought to myself well, let's just imagine that Enoch became a father at the youngest possible age we could ever conceive of someone becoming a father. So, so let's say Enoch became a father at 13. Uh, well, 65 divided by 13 equals five. So if we, if we assume that, that, okay, yeah. Um, if we assume that a year is one fifth of what, what we call a year in, in these genealogies, well, then we still have a problem because if you do, if you apply that to Methuselah, Methuselah still would have lived to be over 193 years old. So it doesn't really help us. And everything that I read <coughs> said that as far as we can tell, these really do seem to be numbers that are expected to be taken literally. So, <clears throat> now, um, I think, now just to be clear, I don't know absolutely for sure, I'm not going to say the Bible is definitely telling us that people live this old You know, It's an old document, things can get lost in translation um, But I don't think that we should dis- dismiss uh, this because it doesn't match with our present experience um, It's possible that in this point in history there were things that were different about the human gene pool or about the environment that made longevity possible I've read that uh, the action of just a single gene can have significant effects on how long a creature lives. Uh, and scientists have found evidence that by switching off certain genes and certain creatures, longevity can be dramatically increased. Now, admittedly, that's not something that I personally know a lot about. This is, that's not my field of expertise. But I encourage you, if you're interested, to do some Google research on age and longevity. Because there's a lot of research out there. And it's, it's a field where there's a lot we don't understand and that we're still trying to figure out. Uh, And you know, I pointed this out two weeks ago, but if you're really struggling with this idea that people could ever live so long, uh, something to keep in mind is that tortoises that are alive today, uh, some live over 200 years. Uh, It can be hard to measure their lifespans because they often outlive their human observers, Uh, but there is at least one giant tortoise alive today that is confirmed to be 184 years old. And uh, there's one that died in 2006 that was believed to be 255 years old. It's pretty cool. Uh, now, I know tortoises are not people. Okay? Uh, but the point I'm trying to make is that we have modern-day evidence of creatures that have the breath of life in them, as Genesis would say, that have very long lifespans. So, I don't think we should just write this off as impossible to believe. And of course, as long as we believe in a God who transcends the natural order, a God who is supernatural, then it is always possible that God could supernaturally intervene to extend lifespans. But what I'm saying is I don't think we even need to assume any sort of extra-natural intervention here. I think that uh, long ages could be believable even from a natural perspective. Uh, One other interesting detail is that ancient Near Eastern stories about ancient history, other than the Bible, uh, also include people living for very long periods of time. So the Bible is not alone in making this claim, which is interesting. And this is just me speculating, but I have a theory that these enormous lifespans might have something to do with why humanity was so messed up. Um, because if you live for 900 years, death is just such a You know, it's such a distant concept. And I think there's something about the reality of death that restrains our wicked impulses, that helps us to curb our tendencies towards evil. Um, But yeah, that's me speculating. All right, so let's move on to the next stranger thing. This This is the thing that's really challenging. So skipping ahead to chapter six, verse one. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. All right. What is this about? I said things were going to get weird, so here we go. All right. I know of two major interpretations here. So one interpretation of this passage assumes that the sons of God are angels, Uh, specifically fallen angels, because these are angels who are disobeying God. And there is some good reason for this. Uh, The book of Job uses that same title, Sons of God, and there it is clearly being used to refer to angels. It says in Job 1.6, One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And actually... It's so clear from the context here that it's talking about angels, that in your NIV Bible, which is the Bible translation that we ordinarily use here, it just says angels, it doesn't even say sons of God. Uh, So there is evidence within the Bible and linguistically speaking, that this term sons of God can refer to angels. But if it's talking about angels, of course, what it's saying is that angels married human women, which is weird, right? And then verse 4 seems to be saying that these um, unusual marriages resulted in people called the Nephilim. It says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. Now there's just one other place in all of scripture that uses this word Nephilim. Uh, It's in the book of Numbers, which is just a few books after this in the Old Testament. And there it's clearly being used to refer to people of large stature. In uh, some translations will say giants So what some people will say, this first interpretation, okay, is that these angel-human hybrids were these very large beings, giants And it's because they were so big that they were the men of renown and um, the heroes of old And it was because of this perversion, this, this uh, mixing of humanity and angels that God had to take this drastic action of sending the flood As judgment Now I don't know If all that just sounds Impossibly strange to you Or not If you've ever heard anything like that before But whether it does or it doesn't uh, I think there's a couple things We need to recognize That are uh, problems With this angel interpretation Okay. So here's the first If the sons of God are fallen angels Why aren't they mentioned Before this point in the Genesis story? They kind of come out of nowhere, right? It's just all of a sudden, the sons of God are there. There's no talk really about fallen angels before that, except possibly the serpent, but the sons of God, this is, this is just a new thing. And you would think that if there were major characters in the story, we would have gotten a little bit more of an introduction to them or some, some details you know, of some kind. It seems like it would make more sense for the sons of God here to be referring to some, something we already heard about in Genesis. Not necessarily, right, but it seems like it. Okay, so that's the first problem. Second, if the sons of God are angels, how are they producing offspring? Okay, we, we know from Scripture that angels can appear like humans. Right, There are multiple times in Scripture where angels appear, they have the appearance of human beings. But saying that angels can get married and father children... That's not just appearing as a human being, okay? That's taking on full physicality as a human being, like a human, right? That's something more than just having the appearance of a human being. It's almost like a, an incarnation sort of action. Um, so it seems odd to say that angels would be able to do that because angels are typically presented as spiritual beings, okay? Both the good kind and the bad kind. And that is why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians six twelve. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, it would seem to me that if angels are capable of actually becoming physical beings and fathering children, that this doesn't really make sense, because, well, our struggle very well could be against flesh and blood, right? if angels are capable of of doing that. What Paul is saying here is... You're not supposed to think of other human beings as your enemy. You're not supposed to think of physical flesh and blood as your enemy. You're supposed to think of your enemy as the unseen spiritual forces of evil. Okay? But again, if there's this mixing that's possible between the spiritual forces of evil and actual physical beings, then I don't know how that makes sense. It seems like Paul should actually say, well, your struggle might be against flesh and blood. Um, a third problem. How could angel-human hybrids legitimately be called men? Right. That's another thing. It says that the Nephilim were the men of renown. Right? If you're an angel-human hybrid, are you really a man? And then finally, number four. If the sons of God are fallen angels, why does God only judge man? Right? All the judgment is talking about judgment coming upon human beings for this sin. And also, it's kind of hard to figure out why human men would get blamed, because the only participants in this particular sin here are the women, right? if the sons of God are actually fallen angels. So there's significant problems with this interpretation. There's some big problems. Now, to be fair, I have actually not presented all the arguments that people summon for the angel interpretation in favor of it. Because we just don't have enough time to do that today. If you want to research that on your own, you can. There's a guy named uh, Michael S. Heiser. His last name is spelled H-E-I-S-E-R. And he, in my experience so far, is kind of the, the most academic, scholarly person who's, who argues for this angelic interpretation. So if you're curious, he's somebody you can go to. who's not just loony. Okay. Um, and there's actually even a few New Testament passages that people use to argue for the angelic interpretation. I'm not going to bring those up right now. If you've studied this, I want you to know that I know that they exist. I'm not convinced by them, uh, but they, they're they out there. So, All right, well, what's the other option here? Well, the more uh, what you might call down-to-earth interpretation uh, goes something like this. <clears throat> Uh, again, I have to set the stage here. Now, remember, in Genesis 4, we learned about the line of Cain, right? And in Genesis 5, we learned about the line of Seth. And we learned about how the line of Cain uh, started when Cain was cursed for killing his brother. And it says that he, was, he went out from the presence of the Lord, and he started a city. And that's where his line went, out from the presence of the Lord, okay? Okay. But when it talks about the line of Seth, there's a strong contrast with the line of Cain because it says that um, when when the line of Seth began, that people began to call upon the name of the Lord, okay? And so what, what people will say is if you consider all this in context, it makes sense to interpret the sons of God as the line of Seth and the daughters of men as the line of Cain. And what it's, what, if this is the proper interpretation, what it's saying is, is that uh, the line of people that had maintained a relationship with the Lord started to intermarry with people who were outside the presence of the Lord, okay, who had not maintained a relationship with the Lord. And so by this interpretation, what really upsets the Lord, what really grieves him, is this tendency for men who should know better to, to be marrying women who have no interest in following the Lord. Now, one point that this interpretation has in its favor is that throughout the Old Testament, over and over again, Israel has this problem with marrying foreign pagan women. Um, and when they do that, that often leads the, the nation astray, spiritually. Uh, you might even know that King Solomon, you know, a wise king, his downfall was that he married foreign women, pagan women who um, did not follow Yahweh. And so um, it would would make sense that this theme that we see all throughout the Old Testament, we would be seeing it early in Scripture as well. So one point in its favor. But the question remains, okay, in this interpretation, who are the Nephilim? Who are they? If they're not human-angel hybrids, uh, what are they? One thing I want us to notice is it's not 100% clear here uh, if the Nephilim are actually the product of the union between the sons of God and the daughters of men. It says, it says that the Nephilim were on the earth when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. When could mean because, but it could also just mean at the same time. right? So we don't know even absolutely for sure if the Nephilim are supposed to be the product of this union. Um, But what it might just be saying is that during the time when the sons of Seth were marrying the daughters of Cain, when this intermarriage was going on, the Nephilim were also around. And who were the Nephilim? Well, we don't know absolutely for sure, but it seems like the original readers of Genesis would have known who the Nephilim were. Uh, And there's a couple things that we know just from the text, absolutely for sure about them, right? They were considered to be human, it says they were men, and they were famous. Uh, men of renown Now you might wonder, well, in this second interpretation Why would the Nephilim be an example of wickedness? Why would the Nephilim be part of the reason why God sent the flood? If they're not some sort of fallen angel-human hybrid, why, why would God bring this judgment? Well, the word Nephilim, uh, according to many scholars, means something like one who falls upon or one who attacks and when I looked this up in the Hebrew dictionary, it actually said, a bully or tyrant, a giant. So the suggestion here is that before the flood, there were certain people on earth who were violent bullies. And these violent bullies, these kind of people who would, you know, attack you just for looking at them the wrong way, uh, these people were people that everybody admired. They were the celebrities of the age. People looked up to them. They're like, those guys are great. Now, remember Lamech, right? From the end of chapter 4, Lamech bragged about being a bully. Right? He bragged about being the kind of person who attacked other people. And it seems like what we're being told here in Genesis 6 is that as these lines intermarried, there were a lot of people like Lamech. And they were the people that everybody looked up to. And they had a name, Nephilim, like Mafia. So, that's the other interpretation. Now, if you can't tell, I'm a bit partial to that second one. Uh, However, I have to admit, okay, my experience studying this week was a lot like looking at that image. Okay, Sometimes you look at it and you see a duck, and sometimes you see a bunny. And if I tell you, you have to decide which one that it is, You'll go crazy, because sometimes you see a duck, and sometimes you see a bunny. And guys, I kid you not, this week, as I was like marinating in these different interpretations and reading all this stuff and going far down the rabbit hole online, I would wake up in the middle of the night, literally, and I'd be like, I see the bunny. And then I'd go to sleep, and I'd wake up later and be like, no, I'm seeing the duck. Like, which one is it? And after everything that I've said, I realized that you may be feeling the same way especially if you personally have studied this on your own and, and you have your own interpretation. Um, well, okay. Regardless of what your, your interpretation is or whether you just feel like we can't know, there's a couple of things that I think we should take away. Just two things, this, I'm gonna talk about this briefly. Number one, the Nephilim really shouldn't be something that we're focusing on. I mean, if it's hard to figure out even exactly what the Nephilim are, I don't think the Lord ever intended for them to play a big role in our understanding of Him, or ourselves, or Salvation. Um, And I bring this up because, as I've mentioned several times, if you start looking online about what people say about the Nephilim, the rabbit hole goes very deep. There are some very elaborate conspiracy theories that have developed around the Nephilim. um, And some people are very susceptible to misinformation because they have this particular understanding about the Nephilim. Uh, For instance, there have been a lot of uh, fake photos that have gone around online of people supposedly finding the bones of giants. And um, as far as I know, at this point, any photo you come across like that, it's photoshopped, it's fake, but people fall for it. And um, that's significant because as Christians, we don't wanna fall for stuff, okay? You know, we wanna be people who care about the truth. And so you gotta be very careful that just because you see something that seems to confirm a bias that you already have or an interpretation that might be weird. You might be like, oh I think that Genesis is really saying that there were these fallen angel human hybrids. Then you see something like this and then immediately you're like, oh wow, you know? But we have to be critical, we, we don't want to be susceptible to, to this kind of stuff. Um, now, even if we were certain that the text was saying that fallen angels married human women and produced hybrid offspring, I still don't think this this would be something that the Lord wants us to focus on. You know, one reason is because scripture doesn't really talk about it very much at all, if at all. There's never a point in the New Testament where Paul writes to one of the churches and he says something like, be on your guard against the fallen angels trying to create human-angel hybrids. You know, or women, look out for those fallen angels that want to marry you. That's just not there. It doesn't come up anywhere. And secondly, I think it's unhealthy for us to focus on this, because it can distract us from the real work of the kingdom. Um, We're not supposed to be speculating about things like whether or not celebrities and politicians are hybrids. There are people who do that. And believe me, um, there's, there's more than you might think. There's a lot of people out there that think that way. You know, we're supposed to love and pray for people, even our enemies. We're not supposed to, like, look at them suspiciously, like, I think you might be a Nephilim. And then the second and final takeaway that I think we can take from this, regardless of which interpretation we subscribe to, is be careful who you marry. Uh, if, the fallen interpre- if the fallen angel interpretation is correct, then women were complicit in marrying uh, fallen angels. Uh, we know that the angels wouldn't have been forcing themselves on the women because the Hebrew would have used a different, a different word if that were the case. The, the language here suggests that the women were complicit. On the other hand, if the second interpretation is correct, then men were guilty of choosing their spouses Not based on, you know, what God would want, but purely on their own uh, personal preferences.
1: Uh, Remember, it
0: said, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. Uh, Now, this might not be obvious, but what that's saying there sounds, in the Hebrew, almost exactly like when Eve saw that the tree was beautiful and then took food, food from it. The language is almost exactly the same. See, beautiful, took. See, beautiful, took. And the point in both of these cases is that the people were making a judgment independent from God's wisdom. They were just making the judgment on their own. They weren't asking, what does God think about this? And so what this reminds us of is that when when it comes to who we unite ourselves with in partnership for life. It is so critical to ask ourselves, is this someone that God would be pleased with me uniting myself to? We have to ask that. Not just, do I judge that this is the right person? Um, But does God also? We have to ask, is this someone who is living outside of or within the presence of the Lord? Now, if you're married now, and you didn't ask that question in the past, uh, let me uh, remind you that the Bible says you, you should stick with that person. Um, God's will is for you to be faithful to that person. Uh, unless there's some sort of you know egregious pattern of abuse or something like that. But once you're, you're married it is God's will for you to be faithful to your spouse. But, if you're still looking, I encourage you this morning to take this passage as a reminder that God cares a lot about who we unite ourselves to in life partnership. And he cares about that because he cares about us. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I pray that the information that we just tried to take in now, that you would help us to, to sift through it and to think wisely about it. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to be wise in, in who we uh, unite ourselves with and who we partner with. Um, Father, uh, we, we acknowledge that whether or not fallen angels have ever married human women, that we are in a spiritual battle, that we are in a, in a world where there are dark spiritual forces at work. But we thank you that through Jesus Christ we have the victory. We thank you that you are so much stronger than those things. And we pray that you would guard and protect us and that you would give us wisdom uh, to avoid their influence and to be ambassadors for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.